Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen here to navigate the high seas of global politics as we do twice a month. And today we picked a topic that has affected every single one of us in every corner of the world, almost in every profession. The momentous transformation of the way we work and the tremendous impact it has had on society around the world. The future of work is here. We're living it as we record this podcast, even, and you are too while you listen to the episodes from different locations. But is it the same all over the world? We will discuss the origins, the speed, the ramifications, the outlook of this phenomenon with our guest, Danny Bahad, economist and professor at Brown University. And the big, big question is what is the future of work? It centers, if we try to simplify, on three large buckets around the questions what work needs to be done what skills are needed, and then, of course, where and how we work. Munite, I'm going to say right at the outset here that I'm going to be an outlier, a naysayer, and a sort of I'm going to throw... Ah, surprise, I'm, surprise. I'm going to throw bombs <laughs> here. So to a large extent, I think that a lot of the problems we're going to talk about are reflective of only one part of America and not even the largest and most productive part of America. And most of all, talking to friends from Bogota to Bangalore, Sao Paulo to Rome, much of the world is back where it used to be. Maybe not entirely where it used to be, but it's back at work. Perhaps not five days a week, but certainly more than in Washington, Los Angeles, and Chicago. Oh, Peter, I sense some disagreements coming. I, I, I agree with part of what you say, as usual, but I'll wait for you to lay out your arguments because I, I sense that we might have some discrepancies. What we're facing in the workplace is larger than COVID, and we tend to focus on the new virtual hybrid workplaces and how COVID changed everything. But there was a story before that. When we look deeper, the main agent of change in the nature of work has been artificial intelligence and automation, which started way before COVID. And the optimists among us, like me, believe that AI will enhance our work, make it speedier, more accurate, and others, especially after the appearance of crazy services like chat GPT, are not so sure that as machines become more sentient, the use for humans will decrease. So everyone agrees that AI is a huge disruptor. I suspect that you think a little bit differently about the way jobs will behave. Now, I, I hear all that, Mooney, and I. it's not that I it's not that I disagree. It's that I just don't think that the story tells the right story about most of the world. You know, in Anglo-Saxon America and Britain, people are talking about a four-day work week. Hey, all good and fine. But in Lagos and Jakarta and Lima, Mumbai and Shanghai, people are in offices and on the streets. And in part, that has to do with the fact that so many people belong to an informal economy and they can't afford anything virtual. But it also has to do with living in far smaller homes and apartments. Going to work is a choice that people want to make. And I just think that this love of virtual work is very American and upper income American to boot. I'm not saying that things are, are, are not going to change. I'm saying that things are not going to change as much or as fast for all of us in the world as people think. I don't know. P Peter, this episode is called The Future of the Workplace. So we need to talk about the skills that are needed for the future. And you touched on that with, when, with your reference to the developing world. And the ideal scenario for the present and future everywhere is a workplace with highly skilled workers, diverse backgrounds, a global reach, working in efficient teams. And the ideal is a flexible, motivated workforce that doesn't drift away for better jobs. Again, first world problems. The other side of the coin is ending up with a group of 
unmotivated workers who change jobs on a whim, little training and difficulty in managing time zones and skill sets, a whole realm of issues. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that describes it all because I think that a lot of skills come from watching and learning from others and not on Zoom. And, and most of us awoke from COVID to a wholly different world with empty offices in sweatpants and Zoom calls, flexible schedules, cyber risks from open system, mental health issues for us, for our kids, for our dogs, spoiled pets, greater family time. And yet there's a feeling of having less time. And let me ask you a question. Is it possible that all the, the issues around the distractions of the virtual world were part of the management problem that Silicon Valley bank managers screwed up so badly. No place is more virtual than Palo Alto in the haloed air of Silicon Valley. And yet what happened there? So maybe if they would have been at work, somebody would have noticed that they were losing billions of dollars. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm being facetious, but I also think that we don't understand the cultural changes that come from a hybrid system because I think culture is just as important as the economic metrics. So look, the future of work, I think, is uncertain. Let's hear from Thea, who has lived it as a businesswoman. Hi, I'm Thea Ivanovich, and this is Thea's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. And here's a social justice issue that hits home to me personally quite a lot. Um, it's a huge discrepancy for the future of work for various industries. And today I want to take a closer look at the service industry, meaning hospitality and restaurants, which really represents more than 10% of the U.S. economy. And of course, that varies in, across the world, but it represents a huge part of, of many economies. And, you know, we own three restaurants in Washington, D.C., and I, so I can tell you from very personal experience that I did not have a single day of work from home since March 2020, and my servers and busters and line cooks and dishwashers have worked on the front lines during the pandemic, and they are still doing the same thing today. And so as soon as our mayor uh, in D.C. reopened restaurants in April 2020, first for takeout, later with small increments of seating, we were there greeting guests, delivering food, cleaning tables, and we did that because we had to survive. And it's a very different reality than, than many of my friends did in, in sort of more white collar jobs where they could work from home. And so what's been created is this huge discrepancy. And most of the world's workforce was able to change this hybrid or fully remote work environment. And it's just not the case for many industries. And I really think we should, we should talk about that. So you know, the hospitality industry, we were never and likely will never be able to work from home. And it's just the nature of the job. Um, so where does that leave us? Restaurants that were able to reopen came under new threats, including rising prices and workers unable or unwilling to come back to work. In March 2020 alone, restaurants and bars nationally in the U.S. shed 5 million jobs, and that's true all, all across the world. Today, still in the U.S., 2 million hospitality and leisure jobs remain unfilled in what economists call a, quote, deep and profound shift in the labor market. So employment in professional and business services, which is really a catch-all category that includes office jobs in accounting, engineering, law, other white 
white collar firms has soared by 1.4 million during the pandemic. And tens of thousands of additional people are working in finance and construction and transportation and warehousing. So labor economists say there has been a really clear shift away from hospitality sector work, which has really altered the U.S. job market and possibly reshaped it for the long term. So, you know, this movement of workers away from hospitality is playing a role in the economy's broader inflationary problems, which we are very much dealing with right now. So the pressure to attract workers has driven up wages in restaurants by 23% in the past three years, which is more than any other sector. And I feel we're not talking about this enough. So unlike like in many European countries where governments helped workers stay on the job by subsidizing wages, the U.S., of course, unsurprisingly, took a very different approach, offering unemployment benefits once people were out of work. So here's my take. As the hospitality industry has to adjust to people looking for other jobs, restaurants have to raise wages to attract workers. And while, of course, it's a great thing people are being paid more, it also means that restaurants have to put that on the customer because I can tell you restaurant margins are very low and there's no way that restaurants can just eat up those increases. So many restaurants, especially your favorite neighborhood restaurants, won't make it. Large chains will make it. And I would just watch for the proportion of how much your prices increase versus what they'll actually increase in wages. And it might not just be as much as you think. So as always, love to hear what you think. Join the conversation by tweeting at Altimer Podcast. All right, we've poured our hearts out and our opinions on this clearly touchy subject. It's time to introduce our guest, Danny Bahar. Danny is an economist and an associate professor of international and public affairs at Brown University's Watson Institute and a non-resident senior fellow at the Global Economy and Development Program at the Brookings Institution. An Israeli and Venezuelan economist, he is also an associate at the Harvard Center for International Development. His academic research focuses on the diffusion of technology and knowledge, productivity, structural transformation, exports, entrepreneurship, and innovation, focuses on pretty much everything. He's written and spoken extensively about the subject of today's podcast, including on his podcast, Economists on Zoom Getting Coffee. Danny Bahar, welcome to Altamar. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Um, thanks for that very kind introduction. So let's start broad and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. I mean, we, we hear and read so much about the quote future of work and the transformation is happening in front of us in real time. So given sort of give us a short rundown of what the pandemic has triggered in the way work is defined today. Yeah, that's that's a that's a big question. And I think that um, for the most part, I think we now understand that the pandemic was a trigger. It really catalyzed this movement of 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 many of many people i don't want to say most of us but many people being realizing that you can do the same work from home the technologies for the most part were there which is interesting right because usually you would imagine that once the technologies come up things will move very quickly but in this case the technology seemed to have been there for the most part but then this amazing as an amazingly large shock came into our lives and forced many of us to to work from home and then we suddenly realized that we can do this and when i say we of course i'm talking about a, you know very specific perhaps a very specific type of worker but um it's possible to think that this was going to happen anyway but the pandemic was a huge catalyzer like 
pushing us to realize that not only that we have the tools to do it, but we can actually do it effectively. And and that seems to have prevailed. And and I don't know if we can say we're after the pandemic. Um, I, I will I will take the you know I, I will I will say it. And after the pandemic, we're still for the most part uh, not only having that option, and we can talk about it in a bit, but people willing to want to have that option to work from home and people are willing even to pay for it. So this seems to be something that is going to be here to stay. So I, I guess my next question, because you used the word we, and I, I wonder, we, we is, are we all moving to a more virtual work world? Because I, I have to confess that I often feel like this is a very American and perhaps even a very upper income American discussion, because, you know, I know you... I'm sure you talk to friends in Caracas or Bogota or Jakarta, and, and people are far less virtual in those places, not to mention that workers in f places like Florida and Texas are almost entirely back at work. So do, do we need to separate this conversation into different buckets, like a bucket about you know the northern part of the United States and upper income part of the United States? That's one bucket. Then Europe may be another bucket, and, and the developing world is, is yet a third bucket. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a, it's a very good question, and you know we have a little bit of data, not a lot of data, so so we have to speculate a little bit, and 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 I can refer a little bit to the data we have, but 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 the way I think about it is that it's not about uh, what individuals want, because I think that this this should be a trend that people all over the world, even in low income countries, will want to have the flexibility to work from home. But you're right that in many cases people just can't, and and this probably is the majority of the world population. And, and the way I think about it when we divide it in countries is that countries are very different in their productive structure, right? So, you know, rich countries or high income countries, they tend to have a big chunk of their economy being in services. And, and a lot of these services can be provided, you know, online or, or, you know, you can work from home like a lawyer and not, not all of them, right? But even you're seeing education being one that, that we see more and more. But when you go down in the income levels of countries, you'll start seeing much more manufacturing. Think, of course, about China being, being a big manufacturing country where, where you need to have, you know, where people have to show up to the factory. There, there's the automation trend that we can talk about, but, but for the most part, you need to show up. And then when you go to very low income countries or low income regions of countries, you have a big chunk of agriculture. So, you know, when it comes to agriculture, you also need to show up. There's really no way around it. So, so I think that that's probably what you're seeing. I, I mean, I, I agree with your intuition. I, I just don't know if it's, if it's. I mean, we, I, I, I want to add another, I want to suggest another bucket of separation, which is like preferences uh, versus the ability of doing it. So, so I think when, it, when we go to low-income countries, and, and that's going to be the majority of the population of the world, given the nature of the, of the economy of these, of these countries, you, you might not have the option to actually work from home. We tend to think economists, or development economies in particular, that as countries uh, grow, they, they go through this process of structural transformation. They move towards more, you know, services and, you know, leave agriculture, go into manufacturing, go into services. So, so if, if that's the case in many of these countries, you would see probably more and more work from home. But, but I agree with you that this is a very, this is a, this is a pattern that we start seeing in, in high income countries for the most part. So, Danny, you mentioned that obviously the, the technology was there and, and the trigger was, was COVID. 
what are some examples of industries, practices that will be the most disrupted from all of this transformation, the multiple factors that have us where we are? And which ones do you think are, are headed for oblivion? And for example, which ones can be enhanced by artificial intelligence instead of, instead of replaced? Yeah, so um, good question. I mean, I, I I go back a little bit to my to my buckets of thinking in, in terms of services. I think that that's where we saw most of the of the movement in the U.S. in particular, economy that is very driven by services. You you start seeing a, a lot of um a lot of the things that you started to be able to get online have you know have to do with from lawyers to you know even doctors and education. As I said before, there there's the other type um, when, when it comes. I mean, one memory we have out of COVID, which is completely opposite, is that there were these fundamental workers, many of them immigrants, by the way, in the U.S., who who were at the front lines of the pandemic, bringing supplies, bringing food to homes, being in in, in fundamental industries. That seem that seems to to have stayed the same. I mean, in in the restaurant business, I don't think that the conditions have changed dramatically in terms of the workers. They they need to show up. They need to work long hours. You know, the one industry that I think is going to face a dramatic change, and, if, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably biased here because I'm very exposed to it, is the education industry <laughs> in terms of um, artificial intelligence and in terms of working from home. I don't think we're yet, we understand how this is really going to change the fact that we can maybe study in a different, in a faraway school, in a faraway university without actually being there. We don't really understand how, this whole trend that is happening at the same time of chat GPT, for instance, and these AI tools is going to make, you you know, we as professors are kind of freaking out that our students are going to write their papers using chat GPT, which which is similar to how freaking out about math professors or math teachers when the calculators came in, right? So I think I I don't, I don't have good answers to that yet, but I think that that's one, one way in which we're going to need to understand and leverage on these technologies to really make, enhance the industry. Um, the same way we did with calculators or the same way the world did with the industrial revolution, right? There were these ca- cartoons of people in the industrial revolution, you know, or, or, or people calling to destroy the machines because they were going to take our jobs. Turns out that, that, that those machines made our, our, the whole industry much better. It seems, though, that now that you mention it, that the education kind of industry has has been a little bit slower than other industries in in making the changes, even as they had students, you know, from home, from so many places that that were being virtual. But let's pretend that we didn't have COVID and we did have all this technology. What would the world look like? Hmm. That's a one million dollar question. You know, that's that's a. what economists do for a living when they're doing research is to try to find this, the counterfactual. What would have happened in the absence of, uh, which is a really difficult thing to do because we don't know. But we have all these fancy methods to, to try and figure out. But the, the answer is I don't know. But but um, I, 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 I go back a little bit to my intuition at the beginning that I think that this was a trigger of something that was in the making. So, so, so we, we might see a lot of differences, you know, in the absence of, of COVID, we probably wouldn't have had the courage, perhaps, in some places, in some industries to actually say, now you guys can work from home or everybody can work from home. It also would have conflicted, I want to say, with a lot of social economic trends or preferences. For instance, when we start thinking about working from home, there's so many complex issues that 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 we haven't we haven't figured out that have to do with legislation. For instance, like do you need a visa if if you know if if you're a Mexican 
who wants to work in a lawyer firm in the US. You need to pass the bar, let's say, but do you need a visa to, even if you're working from Mexico, to work in the US? Some countries have actually issued those visas, like working from a third country. So it's a weird concept, right? So you can, you're from Azerbaijan and you can move to Mexico to work for a firm in, I don't know, in Guatemala. So, so that's a whole category. Then, then you have this, this, this idea that, that it could be really beneficial or not, right? Because you could, you could, you could increase the opportunities of anybody in the world, which before they were really binded by the ability to move and migrate, right? If, if, if you have a very good worker in Senegal who you wanted him or her to be in your firm, the only way to have him or her in your firm is to find a visa, find, you know, get them to come here and so on. Maybe now you can hire them online. But at the same time, I mean, that, that sounds great. That sounds like, you know, more, more opportunities are being, the, the world is flattening in terms of opportunities in that sense. But at the same time, you can think about these one factory towns in which the one factory is kind of the only option for workers that are there. And, and the workers that are living there are the ones who usually were hired, but now they can hire from anywhere. So the workers who are in that town can't move that easily and so on. So maybe don't have the opportunity as much to, to move on. So you can also have this complexity of, of, of inequality and, you know, we can go a long way. But anyway, I deviated a lot, but I, 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 I am quite confident that this, this change would have happened over time and over time could have been 10, 20 years. But I think because the technologies were there and because some of us, in so, again, us as a very limited number, were in a way already kind of working from home you know, little parts of our, of our day, like we would have a Skype meeting from home, we would have like morning, you know, traveling, you would work from wherever you are traveling and so on. Those trends were there already. This is so interesting that the whole issue about workers and, and, and what, what the worker of the future is and what employers are going to be looking for across industries. And so t talk to us a little deepen those thoughts that you were going towards because there, there's one question is what are employers looking for and what does the successful worker of the future look like but the other question is this whole issue of inequality because you know you mentioned restaurants but you know you i can we can go down lots of industries that where some workers have just have to show up they have to commute they have to spend money on transportation they don't get paid a lot and other workers get to stay home in their you know in their pajamas so i guess it's two questions one is what what is the worker of the what are employees going to be looking for in the future and the second question is but doesn't this lead to even more inequality I wish it would be in pajamas. There were some people over Zoom wearing suits. I never understood why they were doing that. Uh, now that they're <laughs> ruining it for all of us for the future. Listen, I mean, the, the very deep question. I, I kind of have two reactions to that. The first one is that, you know, as in many other economic trends in the world, there are always winners and losers. Any economic policy, any trend, for the most part, is going to have winners and losers, right? If we talk about migration, if we talk about international trade, there's always winners and losers. So, so the idea, so, so I think that here, I mean, the premise of your question, some people might interpret it, not, not saying you are, but some people might interpret it like, hey, we have to stop these changes because it might create inequalities or it might create um, issues. And, and, and here my, my thought is like, no, we just need to understand it really well. And, and whenever we identify these winners and losers, we need to have the ability to, of compensating the losers with the gains of the winners. And we can talk about, about win, winning in this context would be, are we moving to a world where we're more productive, which we can talk in a minute. 
but but I agree that there there could be a lot of losers. I, I think it's very early to tell. Just because as we are really getting out of the pandemic, we're seeing a lot of trends at the same time that are messing everything up, right? So so as we started coming out of the pandemic, people were demanding a lot of the things that that we couldn't demand before. Like for instance, during the pandemic, people couldn't buy theater. In some cases, they couldn't buy restaurants. Restaurants, I mean food from restaurants because they were closed. So so now we're seeing a trend of a very up uptake on demand. And hence we're seeing inflation and we're saying that the inflation in part is because of the supply chains and the shortage of workers and so on. So there's so many things that are happening at the same time that I think it's hard to pinpoint to how these inequalities are going to happen. I think we are seeing a little bit of more. We are realizing that it's not going to be a, a, a world that is fully remote because people still want to go to the restaurant and people still want to go to the store and people still want to have some meetings in person. So, so, so it's hard to understand where exactly is going to come up then. I have some data to share if you want, but it's hard to understand where is it going to be that equilibrium, quote unquote, that from there we can understand how big these inequalities that could arise. They could arise. I, I think our goal is to is to think pol- in a, from a policy perspective on how do we overcome them instead of trying to stop the phenomenon, which we're not going to be able to stop. No, I mean, I completely agree when, when you talk about winners and losers. I mean, that is what happened with the Industrial Revolution. That's what happened with globalization, right? There was lots of winners, but there was also lots of losers. You know, the miners, right? The The factory workers that lost their jobs. And then the political ramifications of that, I think, are fascinating, right? Because those people then turn to vote for extremists or populists. But I guess that's a that's even a separate podcast we can do on that. But I wanted to ask you specifically when you mentioned, you know, working smarter, right? Just the productivity levels. Um, there's lots of discussions about the four-day work week. What are your thoughts on that? And is that something that is that is here to stay? And I guess I should say here to here to stay in America, here to stay in Europe, or here to stay all over the world. Right. So, so, so great question. And, and I think that, um, there's, there's two here that I'm going to also bring buckets here. So there are two buckets here in terms of, of like, is this, I mean, I guess a big question is, is all this going to make us more productive, more, you know, being able to have higher income so that, you know, if there are losers, we'll compensate the losers and overall like increase our happiness and our well-being or et cetera. It's an empirical question, right? So, so it's something we need to measure. Fortunately, some people have, and I'll say two things about this. The first one is that think about intuitively, right? So, so you, I think it's kind of known and it's, it's accepted that, that people like firm owners want their workers to be happy, right? And invest in their workers for the workers to be happy because it's, it's known that when the workers are happy or happier, they, they're more productive and they're more invested in the firm and they stay for longer. And when they stay for longer, they gain this experience within the firm that makes it more productive it's 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 good for everybody for instance like things things uh, firms you know provide benefits right and you know better healthcare and gym benefits and so on to to again we're talking about the us in particular on the other hand you you um so 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 in a sense let me just go back so so in a sense this ability of 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 giving workers the ability of, of working from home if that makes them happier if that makes them you know, being able to 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 have more flexibility in their lives that many people need and want, they're going to be more productive. On the other hand, this is different than a gym benefit, right? Because in a gym, you know, the person ends working, goes to the gym, does whatever he or she wants, and you know, might make them happy, etc. 
But here you are actually putting the day-to-day in, in a very different structure. And, and by this, I mean that a lot of what makes us as societies be more productive and, and, and produce more is, is our ability of working together, sharing knowledge, you know, water cooler conversations, working as teams. So that part might be, might be hurt. So, so, so therefore, it's kind of an empirical question. Which one of these forces is going to be stronger? There's not a whole lot of research about it because these, these are pretty new phenomenon. But there's one by, by actually my, my co-author and, and, and good friend, Rash Choudhury from Harvard Business School, um, where he measured this natural experiment, what, you know, the, the, this way the economists love to, to, to find a way in which we can tackle correlation versus causation. Um, so he found this, he, he studied this episode in, in the U.S. Patent Office the USPTO, in, in, in where the examiners of the patents were given the right to not only work from home, but work from anywhere. They could move out of the, the offices in Virginia or the, that area and go to other places. It's fascinating because it's very, there's a very clear metric on how do you measure productivity there, which is a very abstract measurement to begin, outcome to begin with. But here you're measuring how many patents are they examining in a given day. Well, th- these workers ended up being much more productive once they were given the ability of working a few days from, from home and also afterwards to work from anywhere they wanted to. So, so that's one piece of evidence. It seems that this ability of, of giving the flexibility of workers um, that will make them happier, I guess, it will make even the, the ability of maybe working in different hours that, that where they can feel their more, they can reach their full potential. It's, it's, it's playing a role in making the firms more productive. I think on the others, on the other hand, the, the big question for like people who are researchers in the business world, in the business management world, is how do you retain some of the other part? How do you return this idea that people need to, you know, meet in the water cooler and talk and see maybe in the same room and so on? And I think the biggest the biggest trend in that research is to tr- find ways to continue to do that, either by, you know, what's the optimal way of doing that? Is it meeting twice a year? in a location and for a few days and hang out? Is it having these virtual water coolers where online you can just go and talk about anything? Is it to have a meeting on Zoom every Friday about what's going on with your life? I, I think we're yet to figure that out. But but um, but I think once we tackle that, it's, I, I think there's very op- a lot of optimism that this whole trend could make us more productive. So I want to talk about immigration and immigrants, which is a topic or an interest I think we we both share or we all share here on this podcast. And you know, obviously, immigrants disproportionately work in you know the hospitality sector, restaurants, uh, which makes up a huge part of the of the U.S. economy. And you know what we talked about earlier is how those lives haven't really changed. And I can tell you from personal experience too. You know, it hasn't changed. I mean, we still have to show up and work and serve people and you know wash dishes, etc. So, I guess this is a much more complex question, but but maybe scratch the surface of what is changing or what can change in that piece of the puzzle. I mean, great questions, and I think that um, uh, I, I think with immigration, we, we can start seeing a lot of trends that that um, I, I think the population you're referring to which is only one part of like the, what we call these fundamental workers in, in, in the economy. Um, I think that in the short term, I don't think we can distinguish a lot of changes if they're working in industries that are remaining like person-to-person, face-to-face industries. But maybe I can talk about two trends that we could expect. One is the idea that um, people might be able to work 
in other industries from their countries in a different country. So like opening this, flattening this opportunity world, which might actually reduce, not saying it will, but it might reduce some migration flows because now you don't need to move in person to work. Or on the other side, on the other hand, we, we, we discussed this a little bit, we could, we could see an increase. Let me just give you an example of a, of a firm that I found fascinating that I met the CEO in Canada. The, the name is Mob Squad, the firm, and all they do, which is, is fascinating, is that they actually bring workers to Canada who were immigrants, who were who, who American firms wanted to hire them, but they couldn't because of their visas issues, uh, because of the caps and the limitations. So they actually bring them to Canada. They give them all the rights of a, of, of, of a like a, almost a permanent residence or, or a work visa, and they work remotely for the same firms in the U.S. So you might see a lot of these trends where people actually decide to go to third countries and, and, and continue their work or work for, for another country. And, and, and that's why, ultimately, I think that this is a question of, of policy. Like, and how are these countries that, that, um, that have traditionally a migration magnet like the U.S., how are they going to update their laws and regulations so they can really take advantage of these trends in a way that they continue to attract global talent? Because now what you will see, what you could see is actually a, a bigger outflow of migration from the U.S. if the restrictions continue and then people realize that they can work for the same firms from abroad. So, so, so those two trends, I think, are happening at the same time. So we have very little time. So as I'm trying to summarize everything that you've that, that you've talked about it so here is artificial intelligence automation covid boom it explodes into a virtual then now more hybrid model which has a huge economic impact on cities and real estate and uh, and and now you've touched on kind of the the future of work which includes and involves laws and policies um I'm just going to ask you a very general general question. What do you see as the future of work? Well, um, I, I think that the first piece of evidence that we have, which actually also speaks to, to Peter's idea that this could actually vary a lot by countries and type of countries, is the amazing work by Nick Bloom in Stanford and, and co-authors, who, who, to the best of my knowledge, are the first ones to actually have, to try, have tried to measure these trends globally for, for different countries. And, and, and I think that that gives us an idea of what is it that people want, because based on what people want, I think that we, we ideally will, will, will move there. And, and, and here's where I was referring before, that, that I think that when it comes to what we want, the trends are not so different across nations. So, so I think they, ha they have a sample on a paper that was released um, last year. They have a sample of about, I don't know, 15, 20 countries, which includes, you know, from the U.S. and Canada and France to Ukraine and China and India and, and Malaysia and Egypt. Um, and here, you know, let me just tell you a little bit of the trends that they see, because I think it, it's, um, it's interesting. So for the most part, people in all these countries uh, and, you know, and this kind of it takes into account their, their different ages and their different education and their difference in, in, in industries. They are working around one day a week from home. I mean, a little bit higher in the U.S., much higher in Canada, but for the most part, there are there is already some work from home. So, so I don't think that that's going to go anywhere. So that's the first answer. I think we are, uh, you know, especially in the industries we talked about, we're, I don't think we're going to see a full comeback to, you know, working five days a week from the office. I think that 
people want to work more from home. They say they say they you know they're working right now like one and a half days from home on average. The data shows that they actually want to work close to two. So so if anything, we're probably going to see an increase on in that. Now there's an interesting question here that that I, I found fascinating, which is like, how much percentage of your payroll are you willing to give up to work from home one more day? Uh, or actually, in particular, two, three days. And, and the answers here are also pretty fascinating across all countries. It, it, it varies between, on average, like 5%. Um, in countries like Ukraine, it's 12%. In a country like Serbia, it's 8%. In Egypt, it's 8% too. So, so, so it seems that people, I mean, that's a good way of measuring how much you value to work from home. So, so all this to say that, uh, you know, people want to continue this, have this flexibility of working from home. The little evidence we have seems like it's it, it is creating more productivity for firms. So so I don't see any scenario where we come back completely to 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 reverse these trends. So I think they're only going to get bigger and bigger. And the question is, how do we do in the, all those industries that we discussed very quickly to also provide this opportunity to everybody in every industry? I think that's going to be a big challenge. But but I think that that's where thinking should be. Dani Bahar, thank you so much for joining us for this great conversation. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. Guys, we've gone way, way over time and we can continue this conversation, but I hope we can, with you, our listeners, we can take this conversation on Twitter, um, where you can tweet at Altamar Podcast. So you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us a lot. Our bi-weekly free newsletter gives you an analysis of global trends. So definitely sign up for that and we will see you next time. <laughs>